referencing this book that I brought on stage a few weeks ago, and I thought I might bring it back again. Uh, I'm just going to reference it again. So I don't know how many times I'm going to reference this book. But a few weeks ago, I brought on stage this really thick book. And it was a book put together by several biblical scholars where they were explaining difficult Bible passages. Those places in the Bible that are just really hard to understand. Like, no one really knows exactly how to, how to parse out the meaning of that particular passage. And so these scholars have put together this really thick book with all of these different passages. And it's, it's dozens and dozens of passages in the Bible. And one of those passages is that section of 1 Peter we're in right now. We've looked at one passage where Peter told Christians how to live in a pagan society. And if you remember, a couple weeks ago we looked at a passage where Peter was telling Christians how to submit to all institutions of human authority. Like civil government. You have to submit. What does that look like and what does that mean? And then last week, if you remember, we took on the topic of the master-slave relationship. And what we did right from the outset is we discussed the fact that in the ancient world, the master-slave relationship was very different than what we think of when we think master-slave. Immediately, we go to southern Alabama, the deep south, in the 1800s, where people with dark skin were enslaved on large plantations. That's immediately where our mind goes. And we think that Peter, when he uses the word slave, that it has to mean what we understand it meant in 19th century, uh, uh, the, the, the South in 19th century America. But what we, what we discussed and we looked at was the fact that that's just not the case. There actually is no one-to-one, um, one-to-one uh, um, comparison here where, where ancient slavery equals slavery in the 19th century American South. Actually, in the ancient world, the fundamental economic relationship, fundamental economic relationship, that is, the, the, the fundamental labor relationship in the ancient world, particularly the Roman Empire, was the servant or the slave and the master. Most people in the labor force were under some type of servitude, but that servitude had a lot of flexibility inside of it. Doctors, nurses, what we might think of as those that, uh, of those white-collar professional jobs that we think in our day, they easily could have been slaves. There are a lot we could talk about here. But we, what we did last week is we noted, as we came to the conclusion of that part of the sermon, is that the, the, best, the best word we have in English that would translate to what slave meant in the ancient world is employee. That's the closest word we have in English, and that doesn't even really get at it. That's the closest thing we have. And so what we did is we talked a lot about the employee-employer relationship. And the fact that Peter tells these servant employees they must submit to the authority of their bosses. The good ones and the crooked ones. It's there that we find the tension, right? Having to submit to a crooked boss. Well, what I want to do this morning is I want to come back over that passage. So I want to come back over uh, um, several of the verses in chapter 
2, verse 18, particularly through verse 21. I want to take another pass through those verses. But there's something there that I think has something, uh, that there, there's something there that we didn't touch on last week that we have to touch on this week. There's a passage of Scripture that I think was in the background of that passage that I had never seen before. And in another set of readings that I was doing early in the week, just working through the book of Psalms, I hit this one passage that I had to share. It's been on my mind all week. I almost preached this sermon with no slides. I just was going to come off the cuff because it was, had gotten so deep in me. I had to share it with you. But like most things, I needed some structure. So you're going to get slides and you're going to get some structure. But man, I couldn't get away from this passage. So let's, let's do just a quick review of where we were last week. And then let's go back and deal with this passage I think has so much to do with First Peter and your life today. Here we go. So, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll take verses 18 through 20. We are in the English Standard Version here. It's, um, it's going to come closest to the Greek, and that's the point. That's where I want here. Peter writes this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. All right, so what I want to do, I want to go, we're come back over that passage. But now what I want to do is I want to highlight some things. So let's go to the next slide with the highlights. Here it is. So if we had to summarize, pulling the highlights, Peter's telling them, you be subject, you submit, you respect your masters, that is your bosses. With uh, you, you do that, not just to the good ones, but notice what I'm highlighting here, the unjust ones. Last week we noted that the word for unjust in the Greek is the same word where we get the word scoliosis. That, that curvature in the spine that can cause so many problems. It's a crooked master, a crooked boss. So you, you, sub, you, you be subject to even, not just good ones, but crooked bosses. And when you're doing that, you're going to endure sorrow and you're going to suffer unjustly. But while you're doing that, be mindful of God. You be mindful of God. And if you remember, there was one particular scholar that I really liked the way he described what does it mean to be mindful of God? Like, what does that look like? Like, what's behind that command? Let's go here. This is what he says here. He says, to be mindful of God is the confidence that God will ultimately right all wrongs, which enables a Christian to submit to an unjust master without resentment, rebelliousness, self-pity, or despair. So you submit because you know, in the end, God's justice will reign. And so, if you are called as a Christian to submit to every a human institution of authority, that is what God has called you to do, then you follow God, even when you don't understand why He's calling you to that. And so you submit. Because God's put that authority there. And yes, it may include suffering, but don't you worry, God will judge justly. Alright, go back to the previous slide, if we would. Previous slide. There it is. So, the thing we didn't grab onto last week, we kind of left sitting out there, which we often will have to do, because of the nature of the sermon, 
is that when you do this, when you subject yourself to the masters with all respect, even the crooked ones, these unjust ones, mindful of God, even when you're suffering, you're enduring suffering, all of that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now I want to just quickly move to what I think that means. What I think it means to be to be gracious because it's in the uh, because it's, uh, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What does that what does that what does that mean? I think in the context it means this. So go two more over now. There it is. When we see our endurance and our unjust suffering from God's point of view, we see reality. God will bring justice to every crooked person, and we as Christians will grow deeper in faith. Now, the theological word there is you become sanctified. You become more and more like Christ. You, you are sanctified in your endurance. So, yeah, you're not going to be comfortable, but man, your faith will grow. And the most important thing for eternity is faith in Christ. So, so that's the thing that actually has ultimate value. So you put Christ, Christ is exalted. That's most important. So when you suffer and you endure in the sight of God, from God's perspective, that's a very gracious thing. That's a good thing. Okay, so, so now bringing in perspective God's view of things, this is why you do it. Because you begin to see things from God's point of view. You are mindful of God, knowing who He is. And, and when you do all of that, you have God's you have God's perspective. And that's the thing we really need is God's perspective. You know who had all of this? Jesus. Who would you think I was going to say? James? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I'm sorry, James. This happens to be your day. I have a list. I have a list. Wayne is coming up in three weeks. It's, it's all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you're going to, Jesus does this. He has this. He suffers, he suffers uh, injustice, he endures, and why? Because he's mindful of God. He has God's perspective. Here's how Peter said it. If you remember, here's how he said it in verse 23, chapter 2, verse 23 of 1 Peter. When he, that's Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, Jesus understood that in the end, God will make all things right. And so, he would endure. And if anybody, if anybody had the right to say, this I don't deserve, and I will stop it, it's Jesus. He had the command of the host of the armies of angels. And he never called on one of them. And he endured suffering. And if that's what our master did, we are not better than our masters. So we are called to endure. And Jesus himself had the mindfulness, was mindful of his father. And what did that look like for him? The way Peter writes it, it's the same idea. That in the sight of God, being mindful of God for Jesus, that meant entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Because from God's perspective, Every wrong is righted. Every wrong is righted because he judges justly. Okay. So do you feel the tension still? I think you, you still might feel the tension because we still live in a world where there are crooked bosses. 
There's still a world where we suffer unjustly. There's still a world where bad people still prosper. And there's still a world where you sometimes have to work for those people or be in relationship with them. Why doesn't God just strike them down? That tension has been going on for a very long time. The book of Job. The book of Job is not necessarily a bad person prospering, but it's a good person suffering. And what's the big question throughout the book of Job? Why? Why, 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 why? And he's got all these friends that think they have the answer. And they don't. Then there's this other place where this tension, we we see the tension. It's this passage I just stumbled on in my reading this week. read this passage many times, but I think it was just bringing... First Peter with me into the psalm, I had to bring it to you. And I do not doubt that this psalm was in the background. It's an echo sitting in First Peter at the end of chapter 2. We pick up Psalm 73. Now I'm reading this from a translation that I'm probably going to be reading more from, the Christian Standard Bible. It's a translation that combines readability with accuracy. And so we're going we're gonna to tinker with it here, but we're going to read this out of the Christian Standard Bible. You can come with me on the screen. Uh, I'm going to read it right here, and we're going to break up the psalm. Sometimes I think we forget how relevant the Scriptures are. I think you're going to see it this morning. Here it is. The psalmist writes this. We, uh, the psalmist writes, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray, for I envied the arrogant. I saw prosperity, the prosperity of the wicked. Now, we're just going to stop there. You ever felt that? You ever looked at someone else whose life's going great, but you know they're a bad person? And you're like, why do they get all the good things? Why are they on a trip to Disney? Why do they get a new Tesla? Why are their kids all healthy? How is life going so well for them? And yet I know they're going through a string of affairs. How are they, how's life going so great for them? And yet in my life, it seems like all I get is suffering. This is the tension. Why are those bad people have good things happening? And yet here I am struggling to the point my steps nearly went astray. So you see the tension immediately into the psalm. Here's the tension. All right, well, just in case we... Just in case we're, we miss how good things are for the wicked, we're now going to go through several verses where he's going to give the details. Now, I'm going to stop at one particular place, and I'm going to go, my, that seems so relevant for our day. But let's go. Verse 4. Well, I mean, most of it is, but there's this one verse. I just love the way it's written. Verse 4. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. All right, here it is, verse 7. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. Like when I read that verse, um, just what comes to mind is our consumer culture that is saturated with virtual reality. And I I mean reality even with our phones. I mean, we are literally, our eyes are bulging with fatness. We are consuming so much with our eyes. 
And literally, there's nothing that you can think of that you can't go find somewhere out in the Internet by way of Google or some other search engine. Literally, we're in a world where eyes are bulging with fatness from fatness and the imaginations are running wild. And wicked people are just running amok. Just just the way it's worded. I'll put that up against any poetry in the 20th century. Verse 8. They mock, they speak maliciously, they arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, the people turn, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase their wealth. I'll take those verses and I'll take them out of the ancient world and put them in the 21st century and they are just as relevant. This is the tension. Look at all of the wicked people prospering. Why, why, why? Let me give you an example, of, uh, an easy example. This is low-hanging fruit. Why is that Vladimir Putin allowed to stay alive? And why is the president in China allowed to stay alive? Why was Hitler allowed to go as long as he was allowed to go? Again, these are low-hanging fruit here. I imagine we all have people in our own lives, though, that we go, why is that person still around? You're not supposed to say that, but I, the psalmist here is very transparent, so I think we might as well just acknowledge what's in our minds and hearts when we're struggling and suffering under bad people. All right. Let's pick up with verse 13 now. So let's see what, he, let's see what happens next with the psalmist. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? Did I go, do I go to church for nothing? Do I get nothing good for being good? I mean, you, you feel this. Okay, verse 14. Am I afflicted all day long and punished every morning? If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have, been betray, I would have betrayed your people. Now check out verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed Now, if this guy would have been living in our world, he would have bought every book on the subject from Amazon and studied that thing until the end. And you know what he would have found? He would have found today what he he found back then. You can't figure this thing out. I mean, seriously, do you know why? Do you know why bad people keep prospering? Go get a Ph.D. in the topic. You're still not going to figure it out. This guy's worn himself out trying to figure out the tension. Why is this stuff allowed to happen? Why am I under a bad boss? And why is God not doing something? This is the tension, the human tension for every person called by God. That they feel. They'll feel it at some point. The psalmist is feeling it. The Christians in First Peter were feeling it. You probably might be feeling it. He searched it, and he came up hopeless. And here's why I'm bringing you the song. Check out verse 17. Until, he was hopeless, until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. God's sanctuary represents His presence. So the psalmist goes into His presence And then, in God's presence, he 
he understands. He comes into God's perspective. He becomes mindful of God. He sees the one who judges justly. You see the echoes that go all the way up to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's when he gets into God's presence, he understands. You try this on your own. You read every book. Good luck. He comes into God's presence. And he finally understands. Here's what he understands, verse 18. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end swept away by terrors, like one walking from a, waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. What the psalmist sees is finally he understands that yes, they may die well fed, but in the end, they are like a dream that is swept away. Justice will come. He may not see it in this life, but he knows God will bring justice. And he could see it when he came into the presence of the one who judges justly. You stand out of his presence and you search this question out. You come up hopeless. You get into the presence of God and you see him who judges justly. And ultimately, God will have his way. Now that is encouraging because this is the God of Israel. This is the God who is faithful. This is the God who is sovereign. This is the God who forgives sins. This is the God who loves. This is the God who wipes sins as far as the east from the west. This is a good God. So he can handle all this. Let's see how it wraps up. Verse 21 through 28. And then we'll drop into some application pretty soon after. When I became embittered and when my inmost being was wounded, I was stupid and I didn't understand. I was, I'm thinking animal towards you. Yet I am always with you. And you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart, well, they may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. My portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. So, so what he has figured out by the end of the psalm is they. The suffering doesn't just stop. The good, the bad people just don't, they just don't get wiped off the earth. The psalmist will still suffer. But he realizes, though my flesh and my heart fail, God is my strength. And he ends by saying that as for me, God's presence is my good. He starts the psalm by wanting all the wicked wiped away. If all the wicked people wiped away, then good would come. What he figures out is that goodness is in the presence of God. If you get God, you'll get goodness. You will get peace. Doesn't mean suffering goes away, but it means in your endurance, you get everything thrown in. What does Peter tell those Christians? He tells them, you endure. Because that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You be mindful of God. You do what Jesus did. Because when you do that, you get something much greater. 
than just comfort on this earth. You get a deepening faith. You get a rock-solid foundation. But you're only going to get it in God's presence. You try to do this without God. It's hopeless. So he ends the psalm. Not by declaring, yes, I figured out why. He never gets an answer to the question why. You know what he gets? He gets the who. He gets God. So many of us want the why. You're not going to get the why. You're going to get the who. That's what Job got. It's what the prophet Habakkuk got. It's what Jesus figured out. And it's what we learn from our master, Jesus. So let me summarize it this way and then make some application. Both of these applications are going to be so, so stomping good. Here we go. All right. Toast stomping. I might use it again. It just came to me. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. All right. Here it is. Here's how I want to summarize it. The psalmist saw, from God's perspective, what Peter saw. God's people are called to endure, even in the midst of unjust suffering. They grow in faith and endure sorrow as they are mindful of God, knowing that He will ultimately judge justly. So you endure not by figuring out why is it happening. You endure because you've grabbed onto the who holds you. It is God, the sovereign one, who is faithful to all his promises. All right, here's some application. First one. Scripture builds hope and endurance. Not memes. Not memes. You know what memes are? They're short, pithy quotes often inspirational, often found on social media or church signs. Usually the church signs are okay because they have some Scripture. So here's what I want to get at here. Nope, 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 nope. Careful. Yeah, too soon, too soon. Don't flip the next slide too soon. Let me set it up. Got a little runway here. So we live in a day where I think a lot of people struggle. I mean, if anything was revealed during and, and even in our day, the COVID situation, it's that a lot of people struggling. A lot of people struggling. And if you isolate people, they're going to struggle a lot because they're going to be thinking about themselves all the time. And when you think about yourself all the time, you're always going to end up in a bad place. And so what we're doing is we're searching for something. We're searching for some type of inspiration. We're searching for some type of hope. And man... We've been searching this not just in the last two years. We've been searching this for a long time. So much so that a political candidate can have the word hope as their slogan. I don't have a problem with political candidates using hope as a slogan. What, but why does that get so much traction? Why would that get so much traction? Because our world is yearning for hope. We want something to get us through. When the cancer diagnosis comes through, when the heart attack happens, when an untimely death comes into our life, when any of that happens, we're looking for something to hold on to. And the first thing we often go to is the thing we've trained ourselves to go to. Now, I'm not saying everyone's done this. But man, Silicon Valley's done a good job of getting most of us there. What we do is we take out our phones, we open up our social media app, or we turn on the Hallmark Channel. I know. It's 
Be careful. Be careful. And we're looking for something to make us feel good. And something on social media that often makes us feel good as we're scrolling through, on average, we sit two to three seconds, somewhere between two and three seconds per post. So it needs to be something quick. And here's what we might read. Now go to it. Here's something. We're struggling. And then we read this wonderful post. A friend shared everything you want is on the other side of fear. Yes. I just need to overcome the fear. Oh, I feel so inspired. That's two seconds. On we go. Move into the next one. And then we hit, it's not the load that breaks you down. It's the way you carry it. That just feels good. Honestly, I don't know what that means. But it feels good. I'd probably give it a heart. And two done. I'm on to the next one. Here we go. Here's another one. What lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. Oh, I just, I just feel better. Until I realize, no, I'm the problem. Let's go on. Like, what's inside of me is the problem. Okay. All right. Then this last one. Surround yourself with the dreamers and the doers, the believers and thinkers. But most of all, surround yourself with those who see greatness within you, even when you don't see it yourself. You're going to get through this. And we think, that's going to give us hope. I need to get those people around us that are going to just build me up. And what happens? You get to the afternoon, and what are you doing? Going back for your dopamine hit. You're going back for your next set of inspirational quotes. Because that the ones from this morning didn't last. And so you do your next three seconds. And you go post to post to post. And sometimes you hit a really good one. You share it with everybody else. Thinking that sharing it will make you feel even better. And then what happens? You get to 9 o'clock. You're tired and you need another shot of the dopamine. You need another shot of hope. And what happens when you wake up in the morning? You need another shot of hope. Right? Now, some of you get these shots of hope in two-hour increments as you watch the same story with different actors on the Hallmark Channel. And Christmas is the best, right? That's when it really ramps up. And what are we doing? We are looking hope. We're searching for a foundation to get us through the junk of this day. And that might mean, for some of you, suffering under a crooked boss. Well, let me tell you where hope comes from. It comes from Scripture. Why Scripture? Because what we know is that the only way you're going to find hope, the only way you're going to find a foundation to endure, is in the presence of God. And how do you get in the presence of God? Straight, zero to sixty. It's in His Word. Now, I'm not making this up. Paul actually says this. Romans 15.4. It's part of a larger context, but let's take Romans 15.4 in the NIV here. For everything that was written in the past, that is, in the Scriptures, was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Some of the most hopeless Christians are the ones that are the most biblically illiterate. If you're a Christian and you're struggling with hope, then the next question that you need to ask yourself is, how often am I in the Scriptures? Because people that are saturated in the Scriptures are often the people with the greatest hope. We often say, man, look at their faith. What they have figured out is 
I don't understand why, and I don't even exactly know what is happening, but I know who. The people with greatest faith aren't the people who got it all figured out. They just figured out where to live. You live in the presence of God. You saturate yourself with Scripture. So here's the summary. Do you need more endurance and hope? The way to get it is to saturate yourself with Scripture. Because it is Scripture alone that gives you knowledge about the God to whom you can entrust your whole life because He judges justly. The Scriptures are the thing alone that give you a perspective of reality. Can you go back, um, go back to, go back to one of the memes? We'll pick any of them. Just pick one of them. There it is. Uh, no, go to the next one. I want the next one. This, this one is, th- this one right here. If you don't pick Scripture, you are probably picking something like this. And the worst thing you can tell yourself, or I can tell myself, is that what lies behind us and before us are matter, uh, these tiny matters compared to what lies within us. The last thing I need is to be looking inward. I need to be looking outward at the sovereign God because in, in Him is reality. The Scriptures give us reality. And reality is always going to come with hope. You step away from His presence, you will find it to be hopeless. So if you need some hope, Here's your meat. Here's the nutrients. Here's the calories. Do not give your mind away to memes. And memes stand in for any other thing that is to inspire us, but not give us reality. All right. Second one. We'll make this one quick. But man, it's still toast-stomping good, right? There are two eternal paths. Hell and heaven. So one of the things you see in the, all of this is there are two ways. There's the way of the righteous. God is with His people. And there is the way of those not with God. And the two words for that is heaven and hell. But it is to be with God or away from God. Now listen, I am not a Southern Baptist preacher. I'm not fire and brimstone. But the reality is this. You will die if Jesus tarries. And there will be something on the other side of death. And many people in our world gamble with that. I am not gambling with that. I want to know 100% where I'm going. And I'm going to live with Christ. And if you do not know where you will go when you die, you need to get that figured out. That would be an opportunity for us to have a conversation. And I don't want to just assume everybody knows where they're going. If you are with Christ, you are locked in His grace. But if you are not with Christ, then you have an eternity away from Him. The word for that is hell. But I just want to make this very clear. You're going somewhere. Now, I'm going to do something I've never done. I don't know if I've ever used this famous question, like actually used it, to be effective. But let me do it now. Because many of you know we've had some untimely deaths in our community. People you didn't expect to die, they died. I could die sooner than in my 70s or 80s. You literally could die. So I'm asking this question for real. Like I'm asking this question. I never thought I would. But I think it can be somewhat cheesy. If you died tonight, where would you go? Seriously. Where would you go? That's not a stupid question. Where would you go if you died? 
And if you don't know 100% you are with Christ, then we probably need to have a conversation this week. And you need to get right with God. Two paths, heaven, hell. All right. And let's go with the next step. We'll end this one. Read a chapter of the Bible a day. Read the same chapter of the Bible a day. You're probably not going to pick all the chronological lists of everyone that was born, you know, from here to there. That gets a bit boring. Maybe you pick Psalm 1. Maybe you pick Psalm 73. Maybe you pick something in First Peter. Just read a chapter a day. We're trying to fight against the memes. I like the way that sounds. We're fighting against the memes. There's a war. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking memes are like little people. I don't know why. Okay. Like munchkins or something. All right. Read a chapter a day. Read a chapter a day and watch hope grow. Because there you will find the presence of God. There you will learn to be mindful of God. There you will see the God who judges justly. And like Christ, you will learn to entrust yourself to Him even when you're suffering. Let's pray. Father, we, we say all of this that we have said. We say all of it because it's in Your inerrant Word. And there we find your presence. There we find hope. So give us hope through your word. And if anyone is in this room or listening that is not right, would you call them? And may they repent. Would they come to faith in Christ? Draw them near, even being baptized, and walking faithfully with your Son, with the indwelling of the Spirit. And you're just going to have to leave that work up to you. We pray that in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.